You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Soap here. Excited to be doing a live in-person podcast with Carlo. Taylor Cruz is here from the 2016 class, one of our favorites. Excited to hear about his new gig. Excited to actually have him here in person. Excited to have you listen. Let's get to it. All right, Carlo, you work downtown. What's your opinion on working downtown? Downtown is not the same place it was 15, 20 years ago. I'll tell you that much. Um, I'm excited. It's my first time working downtown. There's a lot of energy here. And I, and I feel like even though downtown gets a bad rap, it's actually one of the few walkable neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And there's a lot of exciting new developments, new hotels, new bars, new restaurants. So I think it's a great place to work. And if you're interested in the public sector or city government, uh, it's definitely where all the action's at. It is true. So we're recording this episode in between 11th and 12th on Olive on the 13th floor here. And we've got a bird's eye view of all the construction actually in front of us. I think you're right about downtown changing a lot. It'd be interesting to see what else comes in the next couple of years, uh, especially around the south part of, of town. I think you're right about walkability. Um, what kind of things would you want to see to improve that sort of pedestrian life here? Is it protected bike lanes? Is it bus lanes? What do you think would make the biggest difference? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely all of the above. Uh, downtown has really great amenities when it comes to entertainment and nightlife and going out. But I think what it's missing is sort of the the other third spaces that really help create communities, uh, spaces for families, space for kids to play in, uh, folks who just want to relax in a park. So what I would love to see in downtown, and we're seeing some of this already, is the creation of more green space, park space, open space. Uh, with My Figueroa, we're definitely seeing more walkable streets, more safe streets for bikers and pedestrians. And as someone who is taking transit every day and walking every day and I don't own a car, uh, I definitely appreciate feeling more safe as a pedestrian walking around downtown. How long have you lived life without a car? So including my time in the Bay, I would say I'm going on 13, 14 years now without a car. Uh, and as someone who was born and raised in Los Angeles, it, it still feels weird to this day. So when someone asks you, hey, I'm considering going without a car in LA, what do you tell them? I say, great. I say, no better time to do it. And in some ways, it's easier now to go without a car than it was even two years ago, before the Expo line uh, went to the west side, before Lyft and Uber were so ubiquitous that even friends who would never think about taking the bus or transit will Lyft and Uber uh, without a second thought. So then describe to us your commute from where you live to your office. Sure. So I either wake up and um, walk to the bus, Big Blue Bus, and Big Blue Bus has lots of connections to the Expo line. I live kind of on the border of Santa Monica and the west side, and then take the bus to Expo Line, and with a 50 cent transfer, I get to work. So total cost of commuting to work is less than $2 every day. Um, and then some other days, I will ride my bike to the Expo stop and um, and then just take Expo from there. So door to door, it's about an hour. Got it. And then which of the lines under construction are the things that are being built now do you feel like will have the biggest impact is it the Crenshaw line is the thing to the airport is it um yeah talk of having some more bike lane dedication that actually goes somewhere what do you feel like makes the biggest difference yeah that's that's a great question i think the regional connector which Mm -hmm. is sort of a a wonky kind of transit geeky project because it's not actually a new line that extends outward into the suburbs uh kind of like how we have the gold line extension but it's what it does do, it, it allows the gold line and the blue line to continue through downtown LA, creates three new stops, and then connects the blue line to the gold line and the expo line to the gold line as well. So we'll actually have um, a new 
a new route where we'll, you can go from the west side to East LA um, in one ride. And you can also go from downtown Long Beach to Azusa using the Gold Line, also uh, using a one ride. So you won't have to transfer. And the last question before I want to ask you something about your, your new job. So if you could build one new rail line, where would you build it? Hmm. I think uh, we're really missing a north-south connection. Expo or Metro is already doing a lot of great investment and, and work uh, building the Crenshaw line, looking at the Sepulveda Pass, but we really don't have as many north-south connections that will allow us to get from you know places like Culver City to West Hollywood or from Santa Monica into the Valley. And if we can really allow folks to get from one side of the city to the other without a car, using those north-south north, south connections, we can really alleviate some of our traffic on the 405 and on the 110 and on 101. Um, and as any Angelino knows, those are sort of the notorious freeways for uh, rush hour traffic. Yeah, I think for me, it'd be some type of extension going north-south on Vermont that gets you connected with the red line, purple line somehow, and this goes really far south, maybe all the way to South Bay. Um, I guess a, for me personally, fun one would be too, something branching off the expo line through WeHo and up to Hollywood would be, man, that'd be so nice not to have to go north on La Cienega or Fairfax or Western anymore. Yeah. The yeah. city of West Hollywood is actually yeah, um, advocating for their own light rail line now. Uh, so they want to see the Crenshaw line extended all the way up to them. Um, and, you know, that's quite a change from maybe 30, 40 years ago where uh, cities like Beverly Hills and West Hollywood were actually some of the obstacles to, in getting these transit projects through. Yeah. So it's a great turnaround. All right. Well, give us the scoop on the new gig. How long have you been there and what are you doing? Um, so I'm at the Sierra Club now. I am working on air quality and electric transportation electrification issues, which means I'm working to move all of the transportation sector to electric vehicles, uh, zero emission buses, uh, electric cars, uh, electric trucks, because we're finding that not only is transportation the largest uh, contributor to greenhouse gases currently. Um, it's even smaller than the energy sector and the building sector, but it's also a uh, vast majority of the pollutants that cause cancer, things like ozone, things like particulate matter, uh, nitrous oxide, also known as NOx. And I've been working there for about a little less than two months, but it's, uh, it's already felt like a wild ride because there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of action going on in the air quality and transportation space. So then when you bring up the idea of making transportation all electric, is there anyone that actually says, no, I don't want to do that. It's a bad idea when you're talking to them one-on-one -on -one after the fact, like, is there anyone really at their core who believes that's not beneficial knowing what they know about science and reality? Uh, and if so, how is that, how do you even then start with somebody who has that point of view? Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, one, I, there are, uh, companies and industries that still are heavily invested in fossil fuels. So when you think about the Chevrons of the world, um, even SoCal Gas, uh, these are companies that are really still invested in fossil fuel industry. And so it'll be a long time before they truly give that up. Uh, so there's not only that dynamic, but you do have individual uh, folks who I, I would say are just used to the status quo. Uh, fossil fuels and cheap energy has given us a lot of convenience in our modern day life. Uh, we don't think about what it takes to turn on uh, electricity every day for a city of 4 million people or for a county of 10 million people. We don't think about what it takes to bring water um, all the way from Colorado or Northern California to here. Um, and similarly, you know, the carbon intensive activity that it takes to um, 
fuel and power our cars and our, our gas engines. It's an extremely um, labor-intensive process, and it's, it's energy inefficient. So I think folks, when they talk about moving towards electric cars, they have questions and concerns about how far can I drive? How soon can I charge? Will I have enough horsepower to lug around all of the stuff I want to be able to carry in my car? And, you know, other considerations. I think folks just like the feel of their old Chevy or their old Peugeot. Um, so I think that nostalgia also kind of um, contributes to the hesitation and transitioning over. But, you know, the flip side of it is that when you talk to folks who have ridden an electric bus for the first time, who have driven in a Tesla or even in electric cars, they all have stories of just how it feels like the future, that it is so much more quieter, so much more cleaner, that it's more spacious because you don't need a transmission. You have lots more storage room. So I think you have it on both sides where you have stories of folks who don't want to see those old machines and technology disappear. But then you also have folks who are very excited about what the future brings. And has the infrastructure caught up to demand or to what's possible in terms of being able to charge vehicles? If you magically could wave a wand and everyone tomorrow had an electric vehicle, would they be able to charge it? Yeah, the short answer is uh, unfortunately no. Uh, we're only getting to the point now where we're really understanding the, the scope and the size and the scale of the level of investment that we will need, especially to meet demand. Uh, already we have uh, transit fleets like LA Metro and LA DOT Dash who have committed to 100% all electric by 2030. So that means that we'll need a lot more infrastructure and charging stations uh, implemented. And does one charging station charge all types of vehicles or is it different plugs each time? We're getting to a point where it, it's much more standard and universal, but I will say that most charging stations will charge a vehicle at a different uh, rate, mm. meaning there are what we call DC fast chargers. Uh, these are sort of the Tesla superchargers that can charge in under an hour. And then there are other level two chargers that can take up to four to six hours to have a full charge on your battery. Um, but mo for the most part, uh, a lot of them are interchangeable. So it won't matter if you're buying a car from BYD, from Hyundai, from Toyota, um, from Tesla, typically you can drive up to a charging station, uh, whether it's in Whole Foods or in your office place, and charge without a problem. Interesting. When we come back, we'll have some more questions on this topic, what it will take to get us all going electric and what that actually might mean for things like traffic and mobility and convenience in everyday life. Thanks for listening to Zag. We'll be right back. So how do you balance what we were talking about earlier? We we're talking about public transit, dedicated bike lanes, scooters, whatever you want to talk about. Um, how do you balance that desire to have those things with, oh, actually, if we did have an all electric car reality, it might actually encourage people to be more comfortable with having more cars on the road because you would have less pollution. How do you balance that with the idea that maybe there should be fewer cars this period? Yeah, that's a great question. It, you know, it really ex expands. It has to really deals with expanding our view to understand that it's not just a transportation and a safety issue uh, with more cars on the road, but it also means that uh, with more cars on the road, we may not, that are polluting and emitting gas emissions, we may not get to our statewide goals around greenhouse gas reductions uh, by 2030 or by 2050. So California was one of the world leaders in climate policy in which through SB uh, 32 and AB 32, we we're able to set uh, greenhouse gas reduction targets 
for 2030, for 2050. Um, and unless we have a dramatic shift in the number of people who are using transit, using other active uh, transportation modes like walking and biking and, and buses or car share, then we simply won't reach our, our targets because so much of that emission right now comes from the transportation sector. Uh, it's about 50% of our total greenhouse gases uh, emissions for the state of California come from transportation. And when it comes to ozone and things that contribute to um, you know, the real harmful effects of our air quality, about 84% comes from transportation. Hmm. So it's both a transportation and a mobility issue, but it is fundamentally also a air quality, health, as well as a global uh, climate change uh, issue, where if we really want to be serious about reducing our carbon footprint, uh, reversing the trends of climate change, then not only do we need zero emission vehicles, uh, and we need zero emission vehicles that are not privately owned, but are are shared and you know things like Lyft and Uber, where we see more people utilizing the car, but we also need more folks to get out of transit. Uh, so some numbers that came from the mayor's office um, of sustainability, they did some analysis and they predicted that by 2035, we need 26% of Angelinos using transit or active modes of transportation. And by 2050, that number needs to be 45% of Angelinos. So imagine half of Los Angeles taking transit by 2050. I think that's a really ambitious goal because right now, uh, 86% of Angelinos will get around using a car. Um, and we need to reduce that to 74% uh, who drive a car by 2035 and 54% who drive a car by 2050. So then does the Sierra Club have favorite strategies that they employ that they feel like has worked the best? Do they go after candidates who support their views, try to get them elected? Are they hitting it hard on the policy front? I'm sure there's a multi-pronged approach, but do they feel like over time they've learned like these are the one or two go-to strategies that always seem to work? Yeah, I think um, there's a host of issues that intersect both with transportation and climate change. But for the Sierra Club, they really see it as you know, to be real about climate change and also to be real about our sustainability commitments, we need to change everything. That means we need to change how we build our buildings because many of our buildings still emit a lot of greenhouse gases through the burning of, of natural gas. We need to change our infrastructure grid. We need to clean up our own electricity grid. Right now, California has about uh, 50% of its power comes from renewable sources, whether that's solar or water or wind. But we need that percent. Uh, we need to go to 100% renewable. Um, so there are different strategies, and I would say that Sierra Club sees it as part of the larger strategy to get us to the most sustainable place uh, possible, and that is to fully electrified economy. So how do we electrify not only transportation but our buildings, our grid, and then how do we keep fossil fuels in the ground to make sure that we're not emitting more um, greenhouse gases, and also how are we making sure that through all of this that we're injecting equity because environmental justice has been a really uh, big part of why sustainability is, is a really urgent matter now, but I think it's been lacking in the environmental space historically. So then for all this to happen on a timeline that you laid out that folks want it to happen at, do you need some sort of environmental Marshall plan where you need just some huge influx of federal dollars to turn the tide and to get people used to, something new or does it ultimately come from people like Elon Musk or Bezos or billionaires? Like what, what is the catalyst that could really kind of turn the tide on some of these ideas? Cause when you describe it, it sounds like, man, this is, this is a great job creation opportunities. This is great. 
benefits on so many different levels to folks, but what does it actually take to, to get it tipped over so it's not at the margins? Yeah, I, I think for California, it takes real political leadership uh, because we have certain policies already in place with SB 32 and AB 32, SB 100 and, and 350. These are all state laws and um, these are all state bills that really set targets and move the state of California to really start thinking about more sustainable measures. But what we're missing now is the political leadership that it takes to implement this these policies on the ground, right? So not only setting targets for 2030 and 2050, but how do we actually get Santa Monica Big Blue Bus to actually start buying electric buses versus uh, natural gas buses? How do we actually get Metro to go to 100% electrified by 2030? And also, um, one of the issues that we're seeing right now is at the Air Quality Management District. This is one of the important regulatory agencies that is in charge of preserving our air quality and, and regulating polluters. But we're seeing that it's hard for them to rein in the kind of proliferation around warehouse development. So we see a lot of new developments around warehouses and logistics shipping. Imagine when you're ordering something off of Amazon or online shopping, that's usually coming from a warehouse out in the Inland Empire. And that means the goods have to be trucked from the Port of LA out to the IE, from the IE to a warehouse, and then from there to your home. And that's a lot of, of vehicle miles traveled, and that's a lot of emissions polluting on the road. So being able to rein that in and understand what is the cumulative effect of all those things and how does it affect our health and quality will require not only um, political leadership, but it will require us forcing industry to do the right thing. Because simply put, there are still a lot of um, industries out there that haven't had to uh, deal with the same kind of environmental laws that we've seen in transportation or that we've seen in housing. So industries like um, shipping in locomotive freight, there are right now no plans on the books to transition locomotive freight from diesel engines to all electric or something cleaner. And when it comes to um, pollutants in the air, diesel engines are some of the worst. Um, they're about only 2% of the vehicles on the road, but they're 90% of the emissions. Hmm. So if, even if we just target those 2% of trucks and vehicles, we can make a big difference in our air quality. All right, last question. How are we supposed to feel about bird scooters? <laughs> I actually like bird scooters. I think, um, well, one, uh, be sure to wear a helmet because right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a California law that any motorized scooter, including an electric scooter, you have to wear a helmet. And cities like Santa Monica are definitely giving tickets to folks. I've mm -hmm. seen a few folks get tickets already. Uh, I like it because it's making people aware of last mile, first mile sort of transit solutions. This is when, you know, after you've taken the bus or after you've taken the metro and you still have to walk 20 minutes to get to your house or to get to your job. What do you do then? Things like bird scooter, bike share, electric bikes, line bikes. These are all uh, solutions for what we call first mile, last mile. And as folks start seeing them as convenient, as things that they can incorporate into their into their community everyday life, I think we can then uh, make it even easier for folks to get out of their car and then uh, contribute to the larger goal of reducing our greenhouse gases for California. Yeah, I think you're right about that. The, the possibility that I see is you would you get people who are not using transit who are then exposed to using transit. And then they would realize, oh man, it's really unsafe to be on a bird scooter yeah. on this quote unquote protected bike lane that's yeah. not protected at all. And then it makes you someone who's willing to advocate for yeah, protection of 
humans from cars and traffic. And it, I think it adds a potential new voting base or constituent base to get some of these things actually done. Yeah, absolutely. That And the other thing we, we weren't able to touch upon is uh, the importance of things like Vision Zero. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I think with this new uh, electrified future, we also have a lot of opportunities to redesign our cities, uh, not just around cars, but for people, for transit. How do we allow more space in the city for people, but also how do we move more people around in the city? And I think that is directly tied to Vision Zero and making sure that regardless of how you travel around, that you feel safe and that you feel like you have a convenient option to get around the city. Nice. Well, as you're traveling around on public transit, say hello to Carlo. Listen to all their episodes of the Zag on your iPhones and your podcasting tools. You can catch us on everything now from iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify. We just added our episodes onto Stitcher. You can't miss us. Make sure to download all episodes. We'll have a few more coming up later this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon.